Looking for a verbal hand job? Yes, 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 yes. Release your frustrations and listen to Blunt Talk on Renegade Talk Radio. Welcome, Renegade Nation, Renegade Talk in Maui, where we don't sugarcoat shit. shit. Of course, uh, today's a really important day. We have one of the one of the nation's top journalists on the air to talk about uh, his book. Who stole the American dream? And he's going to tell you all about it. Marla, how are you today in beautiful, hot Hawaii? I just want to say aloha, Kendrick Smith. Kendrick Smith is on the air. A Pulitzer Prize winning former New York Times reporter, editor, and Emmy Award winning producer correspondent. He's uh, one of the uh, America's most distinguished journalists. Renegade Nation, listen to this show, and it is time to wake up a little bit of the who, and we'll be right back. Hold who? Thank you for all the downloads, and thank you for being a Renegade Nation listener. We really appreciate it. We also appreciate Hedrick uh, Smith, a, the a Pulitzer Prize winning uh, former New York Times reporter and editor, that he's on the air today to uh, talk about the book that he wrote back in um, September of 2012, and the book is called Who Stole the American Dream by Random House. And Hedrick, me. how are you? I'm just great. I just want to return that aloha from Marla. Uh, um, I'm, I'm here in sub-freezing weather in oh. D.C., and the notion of that high 70s, low 80s weather out there with you guys sounds wonderful. That's why we sound so upbeat. Come on over. <laughs> Come on over. <laughs> Lay, we're going to be going to the beach later, Renegade Nation, laying there uh, in our bikinis, and I'll have my little... You're going to be laying there in your bikini, Rich? No, 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 Cool. No, no, no. <laughs> I'm bringing the camera. Okay. Anyway, so um, just to give you a little bit of, a little bit more background on Hedrick, in 26 years with the New York Times, Renegade Nation, Mr. Smith has covered the Martin Luther King Jr., the civil rights struggle, the Vietnam War in Saigon, the Middle East conflict from Cairo, the Cold War, from both Moscow and Washington, six American presidents and their administrations. In 1971, Mr. Smith, as chief diplomatic correspondent, was a member of the Pulitzer Prize winning team that produced the Pentagon Papers series. And in 1974, he won the Pulitzer Prize for international reporting. Uh, from Russia and Eastern Europe. And he's written books called The, uh, the, the Book uh, The Russians uh, based on his years as the uh, New York Times Moscow Bureau Chief from 1971 to 1974, which became, by the way, a number one American bestseller. And now he wrote this book that came out in September 12, Who Stole the American Dream? And you know, Renegade Nation, you know that this American dream has been stolen from you, what the banksters did in 2008 and all along, but Hedrick goes all all the way back to the early 70s, and he describes in the book how all this came about. So, Hederick, can you please... Um Welcome, and thank you so much for explaining to Renegade Nation what 
is really going on. So what is really going on, Hedrick? Explain to us. Well, you know, you just uh, what's been going on is we got a shift from uh, the kind of capitalism and the kind of politics that worked pretty well for the middle class back in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, where the wealth got shared in a much better way than it is today, where unions were strong, where bosses believed that sharing the wealth and paying workers well and giving them good health and retirement benefits was smart, not only smart business, but smart for the economy, and where we had really good growth rates, even though we had high tax rates, because the middle class was well off, went out and spent its money, and that drove American growth. And then over that period that you just mentioned, going back to the early 70s, Mm -hmm. we began to see a power shift from the power of the women's movement, the consumer movement, the civil rights movement, the labor movement, the environmental movement, all those middle class movements, which were pushing Washington to serve the great mass of people in this country to a backlash from the bosses, where big corporations, wealthy people began to put their money into politics and into lobbying, and they began to turn government policies around. And in the economy, the bosses moved from what they call stakeholder capitalism to shareholder capitalism. Don't worry about the workers. Make sure you give lots of money to the the owners, uh, boost the stock price, give lots of shares to the CEOs. I mean, just totally different dynamics, totally different outcome. And it's been terrible for the country and for the middle class. And that's why uh, we're, we're ba- the middle class is basi- basically suffering. Do you think, uh, Hedrick, that they, they want to get rid of the middle class and have the upper 1% and then the lower 99% just struggling and being slave to their, to their power and their wealth from the banksters on Wall Street? Some would no, I don't, I don't really think it's, it's uh, so anti-middle class in its intention. I think it's basically just selfish. We want more. But the, but the way it plays out, I mean, we just saw it, for example, in Boeing this past, uh, past two or three weeks at Boeing Aircraft, a perfect example of it. Mm-hmm. What happens was Boeing is looking forward to producing its new fancy 777X jetliner. They've got 50,000, 60,000 workers in Washington State, and the people in Washington State want to produce that plane. Boeing says, well, if you want to produce that plane and you want to keep your jobs, we're going to cut your health benefits, we're going to cut your retirement benefits, we're going to move you in a 401k plan, and at least initially they said we're going to cut the pay, promised pay increases for younger workers, and that's the price. And at the same time, they set aside $10 billion to buy stock back, to boost the stock price, and they increased the dividend for the shareholders. So what you see is Boeing moving in two directions, reward the owners and lots of the bosses a lot more and put the squeeze on the workers. And that's just an example of what we've seen over the last 30 or 40 30, years. 30 years. Yes, Marla. Company after company. Yes, Marla. Yeah, it seems reward the banksters. The shareholders. Yeah, well, I... The people that money have money. Right. And, and the workers are going to cut and, loose. And punish the middle class, which is shrinking rapidly. My, my question is, and, and Renegade Nation, you can uh, get the book at Amazon, Who Stole the American Dream? Uh, Hedrick, why is this going on? Why are, why are the American what, people... Yeah, yeah, okay, what? What is the point? Is there, there, is there like a one world order? I mean, why are they... Are, is, is this just greed? Well, uh, there, there are two ways to look at it, Marla. One is um, 
what we're going to get to in the second half of the answer to the question, which okay. is your question, is agreed. The first is the, the arguments made by a lot of business leaders, by a certain number of politicians, uh, even by people in the, in the media and the press, um, and that is, look, the world is changing. Uh, we've got globalization. Uh, people in China, people in uh, Bangladesh, people in Vietnam, people in Malaysia, all willing to work for a lot less. So it's cheaper for us to produce products uh, over there. We can make our television sets and our automobiles and um, and cell phones. By the way, Apple makes enormous amounts of in China of having their cell phones mm -hmm. basically put together in China. Mm -hmm. Ship them back here, charge high prices. And, and But not as high as they'd be, they say, if we hired American workers. So you, the American consumer, are going to benefit. We, the American business, we're going to profit. But we're going to lose those jobs. And as we lose those jobs, there's pressure on wages to go lower and lower and to freeze them. So the part of the answer is we got to do it in order to compete. I think we need to go back and look at that because I think there's a question about that. But that's one of the arguments. And a lot of people buy that. I bought it before I started working on this book. I don't buy it anymore. And the other is simply that people at the top of the economic pile, the corporate elite, the financial elite, the banksters, as you call them, the big banks in Wall Street, discovered they could make a heck of a lot more money and they could have three or four luxury homes and they could have luxury yachts that were 300 feet long and they could have staffs working for them and they could live in gated communities and so forth and they could send their kids to all the best colleges and they could travel and go to Davos and uh, and so forth. They simply could 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 hoard more of the wealth that's generated by our whole economy. So it is a lot of it is greed, a lot of it is selfishness, and some of it is the dynamics of the global um, economy. But that's been overdone. That's an exaggeration because the way Boeing treats its workers is not the way Airbus treats its workers, which is the big European aircraft company that competes with Boeing. They treat their workers better. They don't return as much money to their shareholders and their stock owners. Uh, they're fair in terms of the economics, and they compete just fine. Exactly, and I read that article in the LA Times yesterday, um, uh, Hedrick, and I, I, was, I was shocked to learn that Airbus does take care of their workers, and they take care, and they make sure that they're happy, and they and they um, um, present a very, very, very good product, which is Airbus. And when I read, read, I read the Boeing story a couple of weeks ago, that they were out trotting around the country trying to figure out what city would give them a better deal, and to move uh, Boeing out of Seattle and and bring it someplace else so they could get better deals and make more money, and the hell with the workers. My question was, where are they going to find these? workers at to build these jets if they moved out of Seattle. They got all the engineers there, the architects, the people that build these engines and so on and so forth. Rich, that's a very good question. There were people who said uh, uh, that Boeing was making a very questionable decision technically. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, building a modern aircraft is not like building tinker toys or television sets or even like building telephones. Mm -hmm. As complicated as, as cell phones are, they're not as complicated as a modern aircraft. It takes literally tens of thousands, tens of thousands of highly qualified engineers, some of them with PhDs, many with master's degrees, sure. uh, experienced machinists, putting together this very complicated avionics, uh, all kinds of complicated metals, uh, hydraulics, engineering, very complicated problem. You can't just take a plant like that and move it or build a new one in Utah or South Carolina or Alabama or some other state, all of which are hungry for those jobs, and suddenly manufacture 50,000 qualified workers. And exactly. Fact, the high-tech industry all over America is saying there are not enough high-tech workers. So you've got a question. That's the reason why the Germans 
take such good care of their workforce because they realize their workforce is the key to their quality product. Exactly. And there's some people who say, well, the Boeing management was just playing brinksmanship, trying to, you know, get the get the workers in Washington State to make concessions. But there were people in Missouri and California and, and those other states that were pretty serious about trying to bid um, low taxes, low wages, low costs to Boeing to bring them to their states to get the jobs. But there is a question. You can't just junk the best high-tech workforce there is in the world. So the way yeah, I, so, so, so basically what you're saying is they, they use this ploy to get what they wanted to reduce the health and pension benefits of these workers by scaring the living daylights out of them by saying we're going to be moving it. And other cities were saying, hey, yeah, we'll take it. But don't don't you think, Hedrick, that those workers in Seattle, all of these PhDs and master's degrees and all these people that build these airplanes would have been had a, would have been relocated to a different city? I mean, how are they going to start if they went to South Carolina? Where, they, where, are, they, where are they going to find this type you know, of workers I, at? I don't know. You ask a bunch of good questions, Rich. Um, I, right I, I think this was a setup. I, I, don't know how they, I don't know how they would have done it. They certainly would have had to bring people from other places. Right. But they might have had a blacklist if the union had voted down. The union members had finally voted down the Boeing contract, which they did the first time. They voted it down two to one. And Boeing actually sweetened the contract by about a billion dollars, which shows you how much money there was in it for Boeing. Mm-hmm. But if they'd voted it down the second time, the question then is, would Boeing have had a blacklist of the members of the unions that voted against them. Exactly. And they wouldn't have hired him in Alabama or South Carolina or some other place if they'd moved there. So I, I don't know how they would have done it. I mean, it, it's uh, and the difficulty is, and the point that I'm trying to make in this book, Who Stole the American Dream, is that this isn't just Boeing. This is a mindset of American corporate leaders, not all of them, but the great prevailing majority. This is their mindset. Workers are are like commodities. You can cash them in. You don't need them. You don't have to value and upgrade their skills. You can always find other workers elsewhere, anywhere in the world, and therefore the American workforce, we're not willing to pay for it anymore. And at some point, that logic runs out. Mm -hmm. And and that's what I was trying to say about the Boeing. It ran out. It ran out. Yeah, exactly. Well, we're going to take a break. And and Renegade Nation, when we come back, we're going to talk about the 401ks. This is in the book about how the 401k was invented by them to benefit them and how that money uh, translated down into the middle class where everybody thought that they were going to be uh, quite, uh, you know, uh, wealthy by retirement or at least comfortable by the time they retired. But uh, Jim Lear from um, uh, PBS, said about this book um, and the book is called Who Stole the American Dream here now is the terrible story of how the so-called new economy destroyed the many credos and practices that once pushed and prodded the American way of life Hederick Smith gives names dates and actions behind the transformation from, from a corporate and financial culture driven by shared wealth to one of CEO slash ownership greed, what we just talked about, about the Boeing situation. Read it and weep with profound sadness and then scream with red face anger, Renegade Nation. It seems almost too tame to call it simply a book. It is an indictment that is as stinging, stunning, and important as any ever handed down by a grand jury and you need to go and get this book and read it so you can figure out why you're in the predicament that you are in. We have Hedrick Smith on Running Game Talk. do something about and it. do something about it. Hedrick Smith on with us. They wrote the book Who Stole the American Dream. Coming back we're going to be talking about the 401ks and how you got screwed out of all, all that money. Plus I'm going to talk about the housing situation that happened in 2008 and that, when that whole thing blew up. Anyway, a little bit of the Chambers Brothers from the late 60s and it's called Time. We'll be right back. Come today. 
freedoms being destroyed? Like free speech? Shut up! Then fucking stay here and be blunt about it. Shut up! Will you shut up? Be right back. Welcome back, Renegade Nation, Renegade Talk, where we don't sugarcoat shit. My name is Richie, along with Marla, and we have Hedrick Smith, who wrote the book, Who Stole the American Dream? We were going to talk about banking, uh, the banksters and the housing, the 401ks, but we're going to get into that. But first, we're going to get into the beginning of the book and some really important stuff. Another very important person, 401ks and also the uh, housing bubble bust. But we're going to get into the beginning of how all of this happened. And Marla, by chance, uh, doesn't remember what really happened. Well, while we were off air, we were talking. And in the 1970s, I was just a little girl. So I really am clueless about how this change happened and why it happened, and so Hedrick. Kamala, I mean, you're you're representative. I mean, I of a lot of people, including me. I got to tell you, I've been around a lot longer, and I wasn't a little girl in the '70s, but I didn't know some of the stuff that I learned uh, working on this book. Uh, but it's particularly important, I think, for the younger generation, the millennial generation, Generation X, Generation Y. I agree. To know the history of how we got into the mess we're in, because there's a tendency of people, I think, Rich and Marla, to think that things were always the way they are today and they were never different mm-hmm. or if they were different it was always worse and I it's do not, but I and I do remember it being different you know I, I remember it being different and I, I've seen and lived the change but I don't know how it happened yeah well if you go back you know we we had the 50th anniversary of the march on washington this past august Uh, this is the march martin luther king and demonstrating for civil rights at the lincoln memorial in washington at the peak of the civil rights movement that was the sort of the peak of middle class power then and for the next decade or so and what was going on at that time was that we had a women's movement that was pushing for better pay for women better treatment for women uh, we still have problems, but it's a lot better today than it was. But that began then. We had an environmental movement that was pushing to clean up the water and the air, uh, and tremendously powerful. 20 million people went demonstrating on Earth Day in 1970, and within a year we had seven major pieces of environmental legislation passed by Congress and signed by that great environmentalist, Republican President Richard Nixon, which is intended as a joke. The but great but my point is that, that we had people power. When people, you were you, very, very young, we had people power you know, pushing Washington to take care of the middle class. You're right, and I, you know, my aunt was a hippie, and I lived in Hollywood, and there were demonstrations constantly over what was going on in politics. 
it, now you, I have not seen that in decades. Yeah, you're right. Well, that's part of the change that's happened. That's part of why we're in the mess that we're in. What was going on back in the 60s and 70s and, and 50s, but particularly 60s and 70s, was that middle-class people, when they got upset with Washington, when they got fed up with the way they were being treated by the politicians or by big businesses and so forth, they went into the streets. And this was unviolent. These were peaceful protests. But they got together and they marched and they came to Washington and they marched up and down the halls of Congress and they met with their members of Congress and they pushed government to move in, the, in a direction that helped the middle class. Like we the people? It's not happening we, right now. It was, really we, it was really we the people. They, they're, tra- they're trying to take away we the people it's we them or yeah, the well, we that, what's interesting is that there was a backlash there was a backlash i call it the revolt of the bosses um, you know it, here's a revolution that started at the top not at the bottom mm-hmm. which is upside down right uh, i mean there was a guy named lewis powell who was a famous corporate attorney back in the 70s was out of Richmond, head of the American Bar Association, very close to major American corporations and very close to the leaders of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, which is, of course, the, the organization of American business. And he went to them and he said, you know, we're getting killed in the political arena. Business is not, uh, business is getting limited. The minimum wage is going up. There are, there are environmental regulations. Women are getting more pay. And, you know, a lot of people think that this is good. But Lewis Powell is saying, wait a minute, this is taking power away from the bosses, from the CEOs, from the corner office, from the C-suite, as they say today. And um, so he says, you know, we need to fight back. We need to get organized. And his friends at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce says, well, you're an attorney. You file legal briefs. Why don't you write it down? Write, write us an argument. So Powell wrote a thing that I had never heard of. I was the Washington bureau chief for the New York Times in the late 1970s. He wrote this in the early 1970s. I had never heard of the Powell memo wow. until I started working on this book, Who Stole the American Dream. Powell wrote a very tough memo. He was like a Paul Revere for American CEOs. And he said, look, guys, you're getting killed in the political arena. You need to get involved. You need to organize. You need to pool your money. You need to go against your enemies aggressively, identify them, go after Ralph Nader, the consumer advocate, go after the trade unions, go after the you know, Gloria Steinem and the, and the people who are pushing the women's movement. And you need to take power. You need to take the high ground. And what's amazing, what's amazing is that's what happened. Within about seven or eight years of Powell writing his memo, the number of businesses that had offices in Washington to lobby the government shot up from 175 to over 2,000. Wow. There were 50,000 people working for business trade associations by 1980. This is before Reagan gets elected. Okay, this is, this is back in the late 70s. You begin to see the impact of this. There were 9,000 registered corporate lobbyists. There were 8,000 corporate PR people. It went from nothing. The The business roundtable, which is now one of the most powerful voices of big corporations in America, it didn't exist in 1971, Powell wrote its memo. Four months later, DuPont, General Motors, General Electric, IBM, they all decided to get together. We got to have our own organization in Washington. So Powell was a kind of the Paul Revere for a business revolt 
and they began to move into Washington and take control. So basically, you can see it happening under Jimmy Carter. Jimmy right, Henry. So, so basically, what Powell did was he he garnered all of those CEOs of these top corporations to start a war against the middle class. That the middle class and even the New York Times reporters and reporters of, of all different types had no idea what the hell was going on in Washington and what these people were up to 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 make sure that they had the control and that they would con- keep that control for the next 30, 40, 50 years, and here we are today. You got the basic story right. I can tell you, I can tell you, we could see under Carter, I was running the Washington Bureau of the New York Times at that time. I had mm-hmm. about 35, 40 reporters working for me, all good reporters. We could see, for example, Carter wanted to, re- to revise the tax code. He wanted to close loopholes for the wealthy. He wanted to raise corporate taxes. Uh, he wanted to drop some low-income people off the tax rolls mm-hmm. uh, and so forth. When the Congress that was lobbied by what I call Powell's army, now Powell didn't do this alone. He gave his memo to the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. They circulated secrecy and secretly. The reason we didn't know about it is this was all done in private, okay? This is the way the Koch brothers operate today. Exactly. But that's how, that's how they were doing it back then. And what these guys got organized. And when, when Carter's tax bill came back from Congress, it was the opposite of what he wanted. Instead of closing the loopholes on the wealthy, it lowered the capital gains tax. Well, the capital gains tax rewards the people who have long-term investments. Well, guess who has most of those? Anybody who's got a 401k. Uh, but the benefit, 50% of the capital gains, listen to this number, 50% of the capital gains on the American stock market go to the top 1% of income. Exactly. So when you lower the capital gains tax rate under Carter, you're helping the rich. You're helping then, the rich. And then right. Reagan really gets it going by cutting the tax rate on the rich, and, and and the minimum wage doesn't come up. But the payroll tax that everybody pays, that ordinary worker pays, they double over a period of time. So you get the taxes. It starts under Carter. It continues. It accelerates under Reagan. But it's the result of this pressure from Powell's army. And today, for example, if you go back to that period, the amount of money that was spent on lobbying by consumers groups, by labor unions, and by businesses back in the early 70s was about the same. Today, business outspends labor 60 to 1 on lobbying. 60 to 1, not 5 to 1, not 6 to 1, 60 to 1. 85% 85% of all the lobbying money spent entirely is spent by business corporations. Renegade Nation, you need... Same thing in political campaign donations. So big money, it's just changed enormously. And uh, what do we do about this? Oh, we got to get to that in a moment. We'll, we'll get there. Yeah. We'll, we'll get... Yeah, we do have to do something, but you got I, the I, right word. I'm a curious girl. What do we do about it? Because because I think most Americans are sitting saying, when are they going to fix it? Exactly. They, they they're si- yeah, they're sitting Let watching. Tell you, Marla, right. you're right on. Right. They are not going to fix it. They're, they're not going to fix it. Is, you know what? Fix it. You're <clears throat> right, Hendrick, and you know what they're doing? They're complaining and bitching um, on Facebook. And but not doing anything. Well, yeah, one of the they thing- ro- there are people on Facebook 24/7 just complaining, complaining, complaining. It's like you're not going to get anything done here. You need to go to the Senate, you the need, Congress. You need to march. You, what yes. they did. We the people. When the we, we the people. Wait, 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 wait. You don't well, need well, to go there. Well, well, Let me just ask you a question about Hawaii, but this goes for any state in the union, okay? Now, one of the biggest impacts on the way political money has been spent in the last couple of campaigns was the decision of the Supreme Court in the Citizens United uh, decision back in 2010, which essentially said corporations can spend unlimited money. What's happened in campaigns? What's happened is in 16 states, 
people have put the pressure on the local state legislature or they've had ballot referendums and they have called for reversing Citizens United and putting limits on corporate campaign donations. Now the question is, has Hawaii done that? And if, you, if Hawaii has done it and you're living in Missouri or you're living in Kansas or you're living in New Hampshire or you're living in Oregon or you're living in Florida or you're living in Texas, have those states done that? Nope. So you don't have to go all the way to Washington. You can start doing it. You can right start here. doing it right here. Why? You know, a renegade well, nation. Yeah, yeah okay. starting with your, your local. Uh, the local politics. Yeah, the, lo- Absolutely. the, the local yeah. And what about, what about, you know, one of the biggest problems we have in America today is we don't know who's spending all the big money for independent groups. It's all big it's secret. It's all done anonymously. Oh, yeah, exactly. Re- other than they have, they have names like a, 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 a Association for a Better Future, America's Better Future. But you don't America's know. Who, you don't know. Yeah, They're making the names up. But the answer is, you can't tell from the name who it is. Who it is? And you're right. not supposed to. They're trying to hide it from you. Renegade Nation. We have full disclosure. Renegade Nation. The book is called "Who Stole the American Dream." This book is full of surprises and revelations that will just wake you up and get you really thinking. And I we're going to take a break, but I want to get into this Lewis Powell and the banksters getting together and the the heavy duty, the heavyweights of CEOs back in the day to form this power, this uh, this power grid, so they could control everything. And now you see uh, how they have done this and how they have now uh, put us into a position. You so we the people need to get up and start organizing. And one of the things I want to bring up after the break is the four hundred one k and the bankster and the, the housing bubble, but also Occupy Wall Street. I, I, Hedrick, I, wanted, I want you to get into this Occupy Wall Street because they did start something about, about a year and a half, two years ago, but it kind of faltered. It fell apart. It fell apart. And Let's talk about it. Yeah, we're going to take a break. When we talk about it, we're going to get into Occupy Wall Street Renegade Nation and what they tried to do to to say, we the people, you need to start listening to we the people. We're going to get into that. Anyway, we'll be right back. Renegade Nation, you're listening to Hedrick Smith, uh, the author of Who Stole the American Dream, Richie Amarlo on Renegade Talk. We'll be right back. Sugarcoat shit. Listen. Listen Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 12 noon Pacific Standard Time. You'll hear things you've never heard before. Renegade Talk Radio. Renegade Nation, welcome back. Richie Marla, along with Edric Smith, the author of Who Stole the American Dream? You Gotta Buy This. Was it the devil? It could have been. <laughs> anyway, Who Stole the American Dream? By Random House, you can get it on Amazon. Here's Charlie. Down to Georgia, he was looking for a soul to steal. He was in a bind because he was way behind and he was willing to make a deal. When he came across this young man sawing on a fiddle and playing it hot, and the devil jumped up on a hickory stump and said, Boy, let me tell you what. I guess you uh, yeah, well, I know this is going to get a cutoff, so I'm going to lower it down so it sounds professional. I don't have to mess around there, with it later. Anyway, we have Hedrick Smith on, uh, one of the top uh, journalists in the country. He wrote a book, and uh, wrote a lot of books, we by the way. We are honored. And we're honored to have him on here.
here at Renegade. Renegade Nation, you need to buy this book. You need to read it. You need to get educated. You need to know why you're in the mess that you're in right now. The book explains it all in detail. And uh, Hedrick, thank you for being on Renegade, and thank you for uh, giving uh, talking to our um, our audience. Yes, Marla. Thank I'm you. delighted. You guys are people I need to reach, and I hope uh, I've got a message they need to hear. And oh, they- you certainly do, and thank you so much for writing this book. You won't believe it, Marla. It took me two and a half years. Hey, Renegade Nation, this gentleman spent two and a half years of his life writing this book so you could learn and educate yourself as to why the mess that you're in, you're in. Yes, Marla. And not repeat history again. And not repeat again. history. Change things. And we're going to get into why we, the people, are sitting here in the mess that we're in because basically, and I'm going to be very blunt with you, Renegade Nation, it's called laziness. The laziness that the that the television networks and the big media and the phones and the texting welfare. and the welfare and all this stuff has come in to say, hey man, I'm just going to hang out, smoke a doobie, you know, I don't care. Well, you better start caring because these people have continued on controlling the controlling the economy and this is why we have the issues and this is why you need the, to, to buy the book. Now, Occupy Wall Street back in 2010 was the last uh, big rally of people to go against Wall Street, the banks and the politicians and um, it was, it was, supposedly try to make a change. And supposedly try to make a change and they they kind of failed so Hedrick's going to get into what happened to Occupy Wall Street and why they failed and then we're going to get into the 401ks why you don't have any money in your 401k plans and also the housing mess so Hedrick let's get into the uh, to uh, the uh, Occupy Wall Street well it's a great question Rich because Occupy Wall Street was a kind of a cry of protest from the belly of America we were unhappy people could see the Wall Street banks had taken us over the cliff uh, and then the big guys were not paying any price for it. Uh, fear that we were going to have it again. Uh, a lot of anger. And well, Occupy Wall Street expressed that and it tapped into that. Uh, it pointed the finger at the banks and people knew that's where the finger should be pointed. And they set up in the parks. Now, I covered the civil rights movement in the 1960s myself, and I saw the same kind of protest going on then, and the issue then was civil rights. And so it was was a different issue, but it was an issue of ordinary people saying the power structure is screwing us, okay? So, so you think, wow, this is the beginning of something that's really going to be different. It's going to change the face of America and begin to put us on a better road. Mm-hmm. There was a problem, and there's a big difference between Occupy Wall Street and the civil rights movement led by Martin Luther King and other people, or, or the environmental movement. Uh, and the, difference, the differences are these. Occupy Wall Street had a slogan, and that slogan is stuck with us today. We are the 99% and they're the 1%. And if you talk to people today in America about the 1% and the 99%, you don't have to explain it. Occupy Wall Street took care of that. They put that into the American conversation, into the American political dialogue. But what they didn't do is they didn't organize to change America. If you went to, and I went to a couple of them in Washington and New York, Mm -hmm. but if you went to a site, you couldn't find leaders. There was no leadership group. Let's say the banks didn't want to negotiate, of course, but let's say they'd gotten to the point where there was so much pressure coming from public disapproval that the banks would want to negotiate. They couldn't negotiate with anyone. 
if, if, if Martin Luther King was in Birmingham, Alabama, and they were running demonstrations and the police dogs were out there and the hoses were out there, uh, they were protesting against what was being done in the stores and, and the drinking fountains and the lunch counters and, you know, and the hiring of the local businesses. The local business leaders actually, in the end, sat down and negotiated with Martin Luther King and Andy Young, his, his deputy, mm-hmm. who later on became the ambassador, mayor of Atlanta and right. ambassador to the United Nations. There was a leadership group. That was number one. Number two, what did Wall Street, Occupy Wall Street, want to get done? They wanted to do something about the power of the banks. But what was it? Did they want to limit the size of the banks so the banks couldn't cause more trouble? Did they want to put a ceiling on the pay of the CEOs? Did they want to break up the banks so they wouldn't be so powerful? Uh, did they want some kind of laws to control the banks? Did they want to put a tax on, on stock transactions in order to raise money to increase the benefits for the poor or for to retrain workers who've been thrown out of work because of global competition? What did they want to do? I, and if you, went right. to, if you went to the civil rights movement, or the environmental movement. You went to the environmental movement. What do you want to do? We want you to clean up the water. We want to reduce this. We want to get rid of the smog over L.A. They had very specific demands. And so you can't that changes policy unless you have leadership, structure, clear goals, and then you can actually get support from around the country. If you look at the opinion polls after Occupy Wall Street, there was a majority of Americans that agreed with what Occupy Wall Street was saying, but they had no way to connect with them. It isn't, it's one thing to agree, it's another thing to say, I want to join that, or I want to send them a check and support them, or I want to, if they've got goals of, of, of breaking up the banks or limiting CEO pay or whatever it is, I want to sign a petition that will join that. I mean, if you look at moveon.org, they're much more organized than Occupy Wall Street. So in a way, it's a tragedy because they tapped into a very widespread, strongly felt popular feeling in this country, but they didn't channel that in a way that could have a political impact and political results. And that's exactly right, because I never knew, and, and, I, and I, I blame this on the media. They, the media really didn't, the, the media covered the, like, the bad parts of Occupy Wall Street. They never covered the good parts, and also... It's all bad to the media. Well, the, 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 and you're right. They, they, coined that, they coined that term, the 99% versus the 1%, and that's the only thing they got out of it, and you're 100% correct on that, Hedrick. They, I mean, nothing and else... that's important. And, it's not unimportant. Now, the question is, could you revive yeah, can you take could, them you, could you do that? I mean, listen, the, I just read in the paper yesterday, Jamie Dimon and J.P. Morgan just agreed to pay another $2 billion fine because they didn't warn their customers that Bernie Madoff was running a scam. Exactly. Now, we talk, that's outrageous. And we, they paid, what, they paid $11, $12 billion they pay, they, fine before they paid right 18, on the mortgages. Right. They're now up to about $20 billion right. in fines. What the banks have been doing wrong is still going on. Is this still, still going? Up, right. But you don't find anybody ready to demonstrate. Nobody's demonstrating Wall against that. that. And, I, and I'll tell you why. We talked about it on Monday with Bill Dean, formerly of CBS News. He was a news uh, news investigative reporter. We talked about the Jamie Dimon thing and Wall Street and the and, and J.B. Morgan Chase paying the extra $2 billion. And I said to Bill, Bill, that $2 billion to pay off the Bernie Madoff investors basically was to keep him out of jail. They bought themselves out of a criminal uh, mess that they got themselves into and Occupy Wall Street exactly. They bought themselves out of prison. They bought, they bought themselves out of prison. Nobody's going to prison. 
prison with the debacle of the housing boom and the banks uh, in 2000, starting in 2006 or five, whenever it was, all the way through until Obama took office and, and continued on. And you're right. They paid an extra $2 billion to get out. I didn't see anybody on the internet or anywhere else raise hell about that because I it can... It wasn't get, even on the news, it, it barely. Was, it was on, on the news. Barely. Know, it was, it was, that, was, that was on the news. It was on the news for five... all know about it. It was on the news but for the five seconds. The point is, the point is... Yeah, what is the point? sentences, listen to the t- pronouns. They didn't do this. I they didn't, didn't do this. They did this. The banks did this. They, the government didn't. Until we start putting the we back into our conversation about how America is going to change, it's not going to change. <laughs> Occupy Wall Street was the beginning. And by the way, whether you like its politics or not, the Tea Party started with a we. Uh, they happen to be opposed to opposite things. They happen to be on the other side mm-hmm. you know, philosophically. But in terms of grassroots action and people wanting to change the way things were going, that's where the Tea Party uh, began. But it's been taken over by very wealthy people. And it's now being run uh, by those people and dominated by those people for their own benefits. But it, too, was a protest that came from the belly of the land. It came from the grassroots. But until we at the grassroots say, wait a second, we're not buying this. And we want to see this change, and this is what we want to see change. It's not going to change. It's not going to change. We have to. We have yeah. to get over saying, you know, what they didn't do, what the media didn't do, what the government didn't do. Yeah, there are all those faults out there. I don't want to dispute that. Okay, but talking about that that way is not going to change a thing. Bernie Madoff. Um Excellent point. A- excellent yeah, it makes point, everybody Edward. feel good. And, you, and yeah. sitting over a beer, you can pound the table and be tough as hell. But the next morning, you're going to go back into the same goddamn crap. Or, go, same cr- or crap. go crazy writing on Facebook. Yeah. Well, it, okay, but it's the same thing. It's the same, it's the same I, I know, conversation what, over the beer, except it's on Facebook. That's what I'm saying. It accomplishes absolutely nothing. And this is how we started off the show, because everybody's complaining about all of these different things. Right. But I didn't see too much about Jamie Dimon and the... Uh, that two billion dollar payout to to the federal government, and I I would say uh, Henrik von yeah. Rydell wrong. Uh, who who is the federal I mean, government? I read, the papers I read had pretty big stories about it. Well, I, I, mean, I, I know, but I don't know what the Honolulu Advertiser does. I, I don't know if the Honolulu Advertiser had anything in there, but I remember we talked about it with Bill, and Bill uh, got, got, from a source found out on Monday about it, and then it hit the airwaves on Tuesday. But anyway, um, so getting back into the book again, Renegade Nation: Who Stole the American Dream? You need to get this book. You need to be educated. You need to wake up and read. Uh, Hedrick has a really you know, the, diverse The point here, Bill, is connecting the dots. Right. I mean, if you most conversations, and we've got a little bit of that in this conversation, we're jumping from one unhappiness to the next. What I've tried to do in this book is connect the dots so you can see how the story unfolded, so you can see where the power is, and you can see how, it, how it's changing the face of America. And, and, and you take something like the shift from lifetime pensions the 401ks, and everybody says, oh, 401ks, great, you know, I'll run my own retirement, so baloney, it's been a disaster. When did those people start? People need to go take a look at that and see, and this is in this, in the book, of the, uh, the part of the chapter that I've got on that, I've, I've got Jack Bogle, the guy who founded Vanguard Funds, okay, one of the biggest mutual fund families <laughs> in the country, and mm-hmm. he's telling you specifically, and the numbers are all in there and how the mutual funds are winding up by getting most of the gains in your 401k plan. They're getting more of the gains through their fees, the way they structure their fees, than you are getting, even when the market goes up. So in other words, Wall Street's surprise, making... Surprise, surprise, surprise. So in other words, Wall Street is making more money off the 401k investments that people are putting in for retirement. 
you got it. You want to say that again? Say it again. Wall Street and Wall the Street is making well, a bigger it, share of the, the profits profit. of, of 401k plans than the people who put the money in. That's right. who says it. He says, you take 100% of the risk, they take 0% of the risk, and take the they money. come out with a majority of the of, gain. of the money. That's why I we... i got to tell you, it is unbelievable. And the guy it spells it out. Now... Bogle is a guy who believes in index funds. And what that means is you buy a basket of stocks, like you buy the Dow Jones Industrial Index, or you buy the Standard & Poor's uh, Stock Index. And you don't have to buy and sell stocks. You just buy and invest in the stock market, or you invest in the in the electronics industry, or you invest in the health industry. You buy an index. And the reason why that's important is because a lot of the fees that you're losing to Wall Street and the, and the, and, and the stockbrokers are in the fees they charge for buying and selling your stocks. And they can do what in the business is called churning, which means churning stocks in and out of your account. And so they're making money for their fees, but you aren't necessarily making money in the stock price going up. Smart investors like Warren Buffett, one of the biggest billionaires in the world, they buy stocks and they hold them. And they're very careful in how they pick them and they hold them for a long time. For a long period of time. And they know how to buy stocks when the market is low and sell stocks when the market is high. And most of us, we buy stocks when the market is high because the market looks hot and we say, hey, 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 we, we got to get, get in on this hot train. Mm-hmm. And we panic when the market goes down. And so we sell our stocks when the market is down. Exactly. And so the smart guys are buying the stocks when they're down and everybody else is panicked. And they're selling when the stocks are high, when everybody else thinks they're hot. So professionals are smarter about this. And it was really a bad idea to say everybody can beat the odds, everybody can beat the average. We have a Lake Wobegon mentality towards the stock market, right? Mm-hmm. All the men are handsome, all the, what is it? All the men are strong, all the women are, are beautiful, all the kids are above average. We think as 401k investors, we're all going to be above average. Guess what? You can't be the averages. That's why they're the average. That's why they're the can, average. Can you, exactly. please, can you please tell me and Renegade Nation when the 401k plan started? And who you won't cr- believe and, it. The, and 401k, created the 401k it. was never intended to be a retirement program for the nation. The 401k was actually, and think of the name of it. If you were trying to market it's something a line. that's a really good idea, would you call it 401 No, I wouldn't. No, no. It's called 401k because it is in the 401st paragraph right. of the tax law. Yes. Under paragraph K. And it, it was buried in the tax law. I just learned that the other day. I think probably from you. Yeah, it was buried in the tax law because it was put in the tax law by a Republican congressman named Barbara Conable from upstate New York, from Rochester. And why? Uh, Because Xerox and Kodak were two big corporations that had headquarters in his district, and they wanted a tax shelter for, listen to this, the profit-sharing retirement plans of their executives. So uh-huh. it was put in as a tax shelter for executives. Now, the IRS rules required mm. that they also included average employees. So average employees were technically um, uh, 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 qualified, but in fact, they didn't use it much. And it was, it was actually only for profit sharing. And then a few years later, a bunch of guys said, you know, we ought to get that 
to cover regular salary, not just profit sharing. We can make a lot of money with this. We can make more money if we get more business. And so they persuaded the Reagan Treasury Department to let them do that regular salaries. And for a long time, it still didn't take off until the mutual fund industry said, whoa, Whoa. we could get our hands on that. Those are trillions of dollars. All we need to make is one or two percent out of trillions of dollars. And you're already into billions. It's pretty good money. So let's sell that. And they sold it to America. Do it yourself retirement. You can do a better job than your boss. Run it yourself. And people loved it. Americans are suckers for that. Sure, I'll do that. I can make all this money. God damn it, I can make all this money without doing anything just like the big boys on Wall Street. So, Hendrick, the bottom line is it's a terrible, terrible idea to get involved with a 401k. No, the bottom the bottom line is that 90% of Americans are terrible at it, and the answer is for them, what you just said. It's a terrible idea to do it. You need to have professional money managers running it. Uh, one of the best things that happened in the old retirement plans was all the money was pooled in the company, so you didn't have these fees for little, small right. individual exactly. accounts right. that mm-hmm. didn't eat up all the money. It was pooled. It was run by <laughs> professional investors who were very good at it. And, and, and maybe 10%, maybe 8% of the people uh, who do it themselves are pretty good at it. But listen to this. Do you know what the median, the average 401k balance is in America today? Yeah, what is it? No, I don't. $18,000. they do? And then if you say, well, that's average, a bunch of young people, they shift jobs all the time, which is true. Almost everybody cashes in when they shift, so they don't keep the savings in there. You've got to mm-hmm. keep the savings in there if it's going to work. And if it's in a company plan and the company's controlling it, they hang on to it. You can't cash it out. Um, but if you hang in there, and you look at the median balance today for people who are 60 years old or older, on the verge of retirement, they've been in the program for 20 years, it's $85,000. That's nothing. It's nothing. You need, if you make $50,000 a year, the experts will tell you you need to have five hundred, six hundred thousand. Right, and that's what they, you know what? Whoa, 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 I want to hear the I just wonder if you had to poll Renegade Nation and find out what percentage of people who are in their 60s now have five hundred thousand dollars in their four one k's. We should run a number would be it'd probably be around one percent, two percent, maybe less. Well, we know a lot of people in a in all age brackets, and all my friends in that age bracket do not have that kind of money. I remember back in but the day. But if you actually put in enough money, uh-huh. starting at 25 or 30, and it didn't have to be a lot, it could be 7, 8, 10% of your salary, and let it sit there and compound, and you invested in stock indexes wisely and stuck with it. You would have that five or six hundred thousand dollars. In other words, what, what I was trying to say earlier, um, Edric, was that they used to bring in these people to explain to the employees about the four hundred one k plans, and they never really explained the plans right. They never explained about these indexes. They because I remember sitting in a, a few of them. They never explained any of that. They said just pick your stocks out, pick out what you need, pick out what you think is going to be good for you, whether it's health, uh, the blue chips, uh, you know, whatever, whatever you want to put it in. But they never really fully explained the indexes. So I think the American people, by through the banksters through these uh, so-called teachers that were coming into companies and explaining to the American worker how this was actually going to to benefit them were lied to. So Wall Street could keep all the money. I I don't know that they were lied to. They weren't given good advice. Part of the problem is, you know, know, we, we... I understand, Rich, why you want to blame the big guys, because the big guys certainly took advantage of... of Well, you just said it. I mean, after... But some of it is our fault. Well, so it, our, is our fault. it is our fault. We, for we love 
multiple choices, right? Yeah. One of the problems in the 401k plan is there are too many choices. People don't know how to make up their minds. Think about it when you go into a grocery store. How many people pick smart food? There's so many things on the shelf. You pick all kinds of exactly. stuff. Exactly. Even you know is not really good for you. But it's just food, right? Exactly. You yeah, you're right. Well, stocks, you can do the same thing. This sounds hot. I like the sound of that. This is good. This is entertaining. I'm, I hear this is a hot industry, you know, whatever. That's not how you pick stocks. It's much tougher than that. And it's a disaster. If you if you buy the wrong food in the supermarket for a while, you may get too much weight or you may not may not be as healthy as you should be, but you can correct for that. You do that for ten years in the stock market and you really hurt yourself. Hey Hendrick, I need your help after the show. I'm getting I'm getting old, you know. <laughs> I don't believe that. Your 401k is worth nothing, Mario. I don't even have one. Okay. I don't believe it. Anyway, Renegade Nation, on that note, uh, we're going to go. Uh, we're going to have Hedrick we on. Are? Yeah, we are. Yeah, and there's a reason. Uh, okay. Next next week, we're going to have him on to talk more about this. But the name of the book is Who Stole the American Dream, which falls into the 401ks and the housing. We didn't get into the housing. Okay, well, we'll get into the housing now, and then we'll go, and then we'll leave, and, and we'll continue this conversation next week. because. Yeah, it's just, the housing it's a lot of, thing is huge. It's a lot of information to, for people to digest. But buying the book, if you go and get the book, pardon me, Hedrick? Buying the book, you can do it at your own pace. You so do maybe it. she's right. Maybe you should. Maybe you should you know, take it easy, and then we'll, we'll we'll do housing on another yeah, time. We'll do housing on another time. Okay. And and, and I, you know, Hedrick, this is such. But an the point in- here is, I'm really trying to give people an insight into how things actually work. And and there, I mean, there are tricks in the housing game. There are things on the housing forms when you thought you were being informed on what was going on in your H one when you were buying a house and so forth. They had numbers hidden over on the left that they were not in the column where you thought they ought to be, and they and, and they were taking you for a ride. It was just, it's just terrible. I know but that's it, what it happened was to enormous. me. And I, I think a lot of people want to hear what you have to say about the housing, and that's why I want to oh, go absolutely. to the to the next next week to talk about housing and healthcare. Those two going. Going through the book as as to how they controlled this and how they did this. Name of the book, Renegade Nation, Who Stole the American Dream by Hedrick Smith. We'll have it up on the on the Renegade uh, Talk uh, page. You'll be able to click through, get the book, buy the hard copy, soft copy, the Kindle. Yes, Marlon. Hey, do you do you want to do you want to huh? give them my tweet address? Because uh, yeah, you can give I'm it. tweeting out this Boeing Go. story that you were talking about. At uh, it's it's on Twitter uh, at Hedrick Smith one. H-E-D-R-I-C-K-S-M-I-T-H-1. Okay. You know, I, I mean, I'm sending out some of this stuff on that so people can pick it up if they okay, want. Okay, cool. Did I, Rich, did I listen to a lecture? About what? From Hendrick. No. Okay. What are you talking about? Well, there's stuff on my webpage if you want to see it. I mean, yeah. video that's live. That's Hedrick Smith. W- yes, I, yes. I, I watched two I of bet your... You, uh, I bet that's where you saw it, Marlon. Yes, I saw two of your videos. That's exactly where you saw it. So we're going to have the... Uh, so, Renegade Nation, I really suggest you head over to Hendrick's site because... No N. No N. Hedrick. H-E-D-R-I-C-K. Hedrick. <laughs> I'm sorry, Hedrick. That's all right. Anyway, don't call, I don't want to call you Marlin either. Marlin. Oh, people have called me Marlin all my life because I'm such a fish person. Uh, anyway, so yeah, we're... <laughs> yeah, well, you are a fishy person, Marlin. I really mistake you for Marlon Brando, though. Marlon Brando, yeah. No, 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 not Marlon Brando. Anyway, Renegade Nation, we're going to get out of here. We, we'll have the um, all the links set up. We'll have everything set up on for Hedrick's site. Uh, the um, at Hedrick Smith one for uh, Twitter. Hedrick, thank you so much for being on Renegade Talk. We really Hedrick, appreciate it. This was great. 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 
Great to be with him. We're going to push awesome. this out. Don't let him buffalo you. Hang in there. I will. Okay, <laughs> okay Edric. I'm going to call you for advice. <laughs> okay, yeah. Call, I need it too. Anyway, Ready Gay Nation, we're out of here. I love